Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the fallout from the report on the violence at last year's Pride celebration in Hamilton. Conservative leadership candidate Aaron O'Toole has released his platform, and the phrase, Take Back Canada, is part of it. Is that going to work? How will COVID-19 change the way we design neighborhoods? Are we still going to stack each other up like cordwood in high-density settings? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We've all been waiting for a report that uh, has surfaced uh, in regard, uh, this was obviously in regard to what had happened at Pride last year and the police response to that. Uh, we had seen a police report coming up earlier, or came out earlier on that basically said everything was procedural, everything was okay, and then an independent report that came out yesterday and was presented to uh, the uh, Hamilton uh, uh, Police board it it now has uh, gone through that process and we're starting to find out more about it and uh, it is obviously a failing grade which has drawn an apology from the mayor and from the chief of police here's a clip from police chief eric gert as chief i take full responsibility for what took place at pride before during and after and i do apologize to the community for inadequate planning and preparation for hamilton pride 2019 I acknowledge that our relationship with the Two-Spirit and LGBTQIA plus communities has been significantly damaged as a result of what took place at Pride 2019. We recognize it will take years to rebuild our relationship and earn your trust. I am committed to doing the hard work required to rebuild and restore that trust that has been broken. Lila Miklos is with us, member of Hamilton's Two-Spirit and LGBTQIA plus community, former chair of Hamilton Pride, and is with us now. Lila, thank you for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks, Scott. So, your thoughts on what has transpired here, your thoughts on what has come out last night at the uh, board meeting? Well, yes. The Hamilton Police Services board meeting yesterday uh, was... uh, I'm going to try to make sure that I use words that are acceptable on radio, um, was very discouraging, disappointing, and disillusioning to watch as a Hamiltonian. Um, the lack of leadership sitting around that table was, um, it would be laughable if the consequences of their lack of leadership weren't so frightening and scary. Uh, just hearing the comments back from some of the members of the police services board and the lack of um, critical analysis from them uh, in response to that report from uh, Scott Bergman, the uh, lawyer from Toronto, uh, what was very telling. And I, some of the things that really stuck out that were particularly painful to listen to was our mayor focusing on the fact that, yeah, all these things that you mentioned, but, you know, I noticed this one little paragraph here that says that, you know, when the police officers arrived, uh, they followed their procedures when they actually arrived and saw the scene. They, they didn't ignore people, right, right, right? So to already absolve himself of any responsibility. Yes, you played Gert's apology. I've heard so many apologies from our chief at this point. I'm apologied out. Um, hmm. if, if you really want to do something that uh, says something, resign. At this point, you're just an embarrassment. You've mishandled this file so badly. Um, there's, you have no weight or authority in your position in the way you're you're. you're you're handling yourself in this entire matter. So I went to go look at um, the budget uh, for the Hamilton Police Services. 
Um, and our chief gets paid over uh, $260,000 a year. If you're paid over $260,000 a year and plus $15,000 a year in benefits, this is, this is not acceptable leadership on your part. You're not earning your paycheck at this point. Do you feel positive about what this report has brought to light? What it has confirmed? Um, that we needed to spend over half a million dollars on a lawyer from Toronto to validate the voices of uh, our two-spirit and LGBTQIA plus community. Um, is a sad state of affairs because it's, it's not telling you anything that we haven't already said. So, yay, great. We spent all this money to, to just reiterate what we've already been telling you. I think the more troubling part is in some of the recommendations. So um, I would frame or use the analogy of the queer community's relationship with police is kind of akin to having an abusive ex-boyfriend and you telling me, hey, I know that abusive ex-boyfriend was really abusive, but maybe if you go back to being their boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever again, and partner back up again, they'll be less abusive because they've really demonstrated they've changed their behavior. No, no there is no demonstration of changed behavior. There's lots of flowery language and statements that are absolutely meaningless because there's no action behind them. There's no accountability. There's no taking ownership for your behavior and your actions and how you have mistreated the community. Um, so it, it's, it's meaningless. It's, it's yet another, I've read a boilerplate statement. So yay, I've done my bit for ending homophobia in the city. No, absolutely not. Do you find that, you know, you mentioned the amount of money that was spent on this report just to confirm what, what the community already knew. Um, that being said, is this a, is this a turning point just because of where society is right now? And because, well, blammo, there you have it. There it is in the report right there. I think there's a lot of, um, residents of Hamilton who've been watching this entire thing play out and have been disgusted and horrified by, by the actions of police, by the actions of our, our civic leadership in response to what happened in Pride and everything that's been happening since, the yellow vesters that hang out in front of City Hall, the incident that happened at Mohawk College when Maxine Bernier came to speak. Um, over and over again, we seem to be more interested in protecting people who speak hatefully and um, do hateful things than in protecting our marginalized communities. And the, the most cynical attempt at this was uh, Councillor Collins, who sits on the Hamilton Police Services Board, put out these overtures that, oh, I'm going to propose some 20% decrease of the Hamilton Police Services budget, which many marginalized community members said, great, this is wonderful. Well, let's talk about what we could do with that money. And then when he actually speaks up at the meeting, he says, oh, I'm only going to put this forward to show you that if you cut 20% of the police services budget, that's insanity and chaos will ensue and our entire city will be on fire. I'm like, mm. really? Really, Councillor Collins? It was so... It's a move that wasn't cynical enough to begin with. Then it just became paternalistic and condescending and obnoxious. Um, so there's, there was no commitment from anyone seriously sitting on that police services board to really take a really critical look at that budget. So if you look at that budget, because I went back to look at their meeting minutes from their uh, uh, December meeting, because they had to start making some budget decisions. So right now their operating budget uh, is budgeted for $165 million. And $159 million of those dollars goes towards staffing. 
and they have a capital budget of $39 million. And when you break down some of what, what that capital budget is about and look at it point for point, there, there are things that you could say, really? Do we really need to spend money on that? Is that really something that's going to help our community? And, uh, you know, right now as we watch the entire world respond to uh, police brutality and finally, you know, collectively as a whole, the world is sick of seeing video after video after video of police brutality against black people. And they have spoken up and they have risen up during a global pandemic and putting their lives at risk because they said, you know what? Uh, speaking up for our, our fellow black uh, um, brothers and sisters um, in solidarity and saying enough is enough is willing to risk our lives for because this is important. And so what do we see in response? We see image after image after image of police forces using tear gas, using rubber bullets against their citizens. So this says to me, we have something really rotten in the core systemically about what police do, how they function, how they operate in our communities, how they operate systemically in our societies, and what is their role and function, and what are they upholding? You said something uh, which resonated with me, Lila, and and that was um, the analogy of the abusive relationship. Someone who's been Mm -hmm. in an abusive relationship and then they're apart and then it's, well, that person's changed. Go back and, you know, again, we we know where that leads. Um, Can you see a way forward here? Well, because we are, you know, as as a white person, as a white guy. I'm seeing this resonate a different way within just my own being. So is this a turning point? Again, considering where we are. You would hope it would be a turning point, but I was not getting that signal from the members of the Hamilton Police Services Board at that meeting. Um, At one point, somehow the conversation went in some weird sideways directions where certain members of the board started talking about their anecdotal stories about their black friends, which just got really uncomfortable and gross. And again, just talked about how out of touch they are uh, with the realities of marginalized communities. And this, this speaks to the lack of representation sitting on that uh, police mm-hmm. services board. They had the opportunity to have uh, a brilliant mind like Emile Joseph, who's a professor at McMaster University, who comes with that lens of personal lived experience, but also comes with that background of that critical analysis. That was not happening with any single member of that police services board, whether they came from city council or they were appointed by the province or they were appointed by the city. It was completely disgusting and distressing to hear what was being said at one point. God bless her. Pat Mandy said, oh, Scott Bergman, I I see at one point in this report, it says that uh, there's a public perception that we're all a bunch of rubber stampers. And he said, yes, that that is a public perception. She goes, oh, I didn't know that. I'm like, oh, boy. Um, Hmm. um, We're not seeing that body being a critical voice coming from the citizens to the police to really ask those tough questions to say, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Now, I know as a board, they're not allowed to get into the, the operational things of the day-to-day operations of the police, because that's not their role. Ultimately, the chief reports to the board. They can ask critical questions of the chief, like, what the heck's going on? Why are you doing this? But I was not getting any sense of critique coming from them. It was sort of like, yes, thank you. Good job, everybody. Yay to go. Look, 
you know, like a pat on the head and here's a cookie. Um, no, no, this is, this is so embarrassing. What happened in Hamilton with Pride uh, last year became international news. And I remember when uh, back just shortly after 9-11, when the, the Hindu temple was firebombed and I heard the news and my, my heart just dropped to the floor and I was completely embarrassed and utterly humiliated that this is, this is, this is my city making international news for racist behavior. And then at that point, the, um, the mayor at the time formed, and I think it was Bob Wade when that initial incident happened. And then the community came together and formed SHCI, Strengthening Hampton's Community Initiative. Now, when I sat on the community roundtable of that uh, as a representative of the queer community, there was a lot of talk at the time about making sure that institutions like the police force had representation within their staff. So we saw black faces and brown faces and indigenous faces and queer faces there. And the politic at the time was feeling like if we have the representation in that force, then the system will change. Well, it's been nearly two decades. And what we're seeing is the system of policing as is representation doesn't change these systems. It, there's something fundamental about policing and what it reinforces and does. And I'm going to wear my socialist hat now in, in doing a, a little critical analysis of this. So the police, what they're there to uphold and reinforce is capitalism. And capitalism, if we really take a look at it really hard, is upholding and reinforcing colonialism and white supremacy. So these things chase themselves around in a circle over and over again. And there isn't that really hard thing about what all these systems are holding in place and who they're holding down and who they're oppressing. And I don't think our current leadership, I don't think they're really built for that conversation by everything they've demonstrated thus far. I don't think they're even interested in that conversation. You know, I think we're getting sidetracked here, Lila, but what you just said, does that not, does, does that not mean that anybody in this community cannot be a part of colonialism or the influences that it brought with them? Or, you know, again, I'm not sure I want to waste the time going down that discussion. I want to concentrate on this report. So let's bring it back. Um, uh, what now? What now, Lila? I mean, the report's here. Um, how do we move this forward? I think there needs to be a change in leadership. I'm looking forward to our next election because I'm, I'm getting really tired of this um, nonsense that's been going on. Uh, because even when, when the incident happened at the Hindu temple back shortly after 9-11, um, the, the condemnation from, from leadership was immediate. There was no question about it. There was no, there's two sides. There's, everyone's got an opinion. And now we've, we seem to have devolved into that. Uh, back when I was, uh, on the uh, Pride Organizing Committee the last year I was on it, there was uh, an incident where we were, our parade was marching down uh, James Street North and we had an incident with soccer fans. Uh, immediately, the police, we didn't need to tell them there was a problem. They just immediately formed a wall of police between us and uh, um, the soccer fans who were trying to uh, cause violence to the Pride Parade participants, the mayor and the police chief at the time called me personally to say, are you okay? How are you doing? What can we do? How's your community? We're making statements immediately, unequivocally, this was wrong. And, and I keep hearing all this, you know, oh, well, everyone's entitled to their opinion. And if, you know, 
uh, hate crime is really hard to lay down and there's a lot of gaslighting which which the uh, yeah. report called out too where we were told like oh we can't we can't take a you know we can't lay a charge unless you come personally to the police station and fill out a report we can't just make a charge based on video evidence which scott said no that's not true um so it, it's it's beyond beyond disillusioning to have a police force whose role in in you know is to serve and protect who are they serving protecting there's many in our community say not me Hmm. Lila, I'm going to have to cut you off there. Just simply, we're right up against the news here. Uh, But we will chat again. Uh, uh, This is an important discussion that has to just keep moving forward, and and I don't see how it can turn backwards now. Uh, Lila Miklos has been with us, member of Hamilton's Two-Spirited LGBTQIA plus community, former chair of Hamilton Pride. Lila, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, You stay safe and keep well, too, Scott. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, uh, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Uh, he is with us now. Lots of things to talk about today. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Hope you're doing well, too, Scott. I uh, don't know if you heard me uh, babbling on before bringing you on, but I found it fascinating at the premier's, uh, the sorry, the prime minister's press conference yesterday. He was visibly upset, visibly agitated, and calling out uh, specifically the conservatives. Although both the NDP and Bloc have been very, very vocal yeah. uh, for the last few days on all of this. Am I incorrect in saying it's not up to them to appease him? It's up to him to appease them to lead in a minority government? Am I off the mark there? Well, firstly, don't be too hard on yourself in the theory of babbling. We all do it, including me. That's the nature of our profession, so it's hmm. okay. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, Justin Trudeau and what he was going through, I, I mean, I listened to most of what you said, and there's not – there's pretty much nothing. I don't think it was anything I disagreed with. It is up to the leader of a government, whether it be a majority government, a minority government, in, especially in the case of a minority government situation, you have to cobble together support, which means that you have to present legislation that appeals to either parties of the left, parties of the right, that being those in opposition, or a combination therewith to put legislation and different policies through. That's what my old friend boss Stephen Harper had to do not once but twice with minority governments in 2006 and 2008. That's what other prime ministers who have led minority governments have had to do. So, yeah, I mean, certainly the fact that Trudeau came out and was frustrated with it, well, that's a natural human emotion. But the blame that he's putting on, he's putting it on everyone else when really he should just be looking in the mirror because he's the one who has to basically finalize the deal and put it through. It seems that uh, when the Liberals are trying to get something through, for obvious reasons, they go to uh, the NDP and the Bloc, which are both left-leaning parties. Uh, however, we right. heard Jagmeet Singh come out earlier this week and be very critical of uh, of the Liberal government, especially after supporting them uh, just a, a while before, and now getting uh, dressed down by, by the Bloc leader. Uh, right. Is he realizing that this is a lot more difficult than he had anticipated? Because it seems that he just, you know, when he's looking for support, he just grabs them all and, and refers to them as the opposition, and it's always all of them against the Conservatives. Right. Well, we went through, I, you and I spoke earlier this week, and we discussed that a little bit before, it actually went through. And I must say, at the time, I had thought that the Conservatives would align with the the Liberals to put in legislation that would have stopped fraudsters from taking the serve. I'm surprised that didn't go through, but it didn't. Uh, but you're right. 
is he starting to learn the hard way that not every policy he puts through is going to get through and not every alliance he hopes to achieve is going to last on either a temporary or permanent basis? I think so. But again, this is part of the experience of being a politician. And Justin Trudeau has been in politics long enough that he should know that in a minority government situation, some of the things that you want to put through have to be shelved because you don't have the support. And some of the things that you think think you can get support on, whatever the issue may be, domestically or internationally, may not necessarily fly with like-minded individuals or political parties for a variety of reasons. In this case, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, as you correctly said, opposed him. The Bloc Québécois leader, Blanchette, also said the same thing and just basically said that he could not support it. And unfortunately, if Trudeau always assumes, and I don't know if he does, but if he always assumes that anything he proposes that's left-leaning is going to be you know, liked, admired, and voted on, or basically aligned with the other left-leaning parties on a wide variety of issues, well, he's got another thing coming. Firstly, it's not how politics works. And secondly, that's not how a minority government works either. So, yeah, if he's learning a lesson, he's certainly learning it the hard way. Uh, good for Andrew Shear to hold this up on the point of wanting Parliament to resume. Yeah, absolutely, it is. Again, I mean, there's lots of things you can say that are good and bad about what Andrew Shear has been proposing, especially since the last last year's federal election ended. But this is the right thing. And, and again, we talked about this, and I've discussed it with others. It's very simple, you know, in the system that we're in, and due to COVID nineteen. We cannot have a full parliament sitting in the House of Commons. We understand that. But for anyone who has actually been following or just looked at a variety of pictures, all the parties have a certain number of representatives, that being MPs there, plus is a large, large, huge screen monitor. If you look to the, I think it's to the right side of the of the new parliament, and it has a place where people can actually speak. A variety of MPs can discuss issues. You can hold committee meetings there. There's a lot of various things. The end result is that Parliament is being run with physical representation and virtual representation, and it should be done daily. And again, this has been an issue that's been going on for quite a while. Other countries, including the UK, are able to do it on a daily basis. We should be able to, too. So, yes. Andrew Shear is absolutely right to call for this. All right, this little uh, squabble that's going on now, how will this end? How is this going to get through? Well, again, it's the nature of compromise, which is part of the political process. There has to be a level of give and take. If Justin Trudeau and the federal liberal government, which is in a minority situation, cannot get this piece of legislation through, they either A, have to go back to the drawing board, redraft it and then propose it again, or B, work with the parties that may or may not agree with some of the things, or at least willing to sit down at the table and speak with them. If there's a case where, let's say, Jagmeet Singh, Blanchette, the Greens, and others just will not come to the table, that may be a sign that they have to do something different, or, as I said, not necessarily go back to the drawing board, but take the model that you have Take the skeleton of it and just add to it, subtract from it, build something that makes a little bit more sense or that you think could feasibly get through in this parliament and go from there. 
And it also may just end up, Scott, that the, the end of this or the, the absolute solution or resolution of this controversy is that this legislation may just fall by the wayside. But something else could replace it. All right, let's talk about uh, Aaron O'Toole's uh, campaign. He, of course, uh, trying for the uh, leadership of the uh, Federal Conservative Party. Right. Uh, slogan out for his campaign, Take Back Canada. Your thoughts mm-hmm. on that? Take Back Canada from what? The Liberals? <laughs> well, look, it, it, I know people are starting to align it with U.S. President Donald Trump, and they're theorizing along that level. It has nothing to do with Trump. I, I mean, I've said this before, and I'll say I probably have to say it a million more times until November comes and goes, and if Trump is reelected or if he's not. Not the whole world does not revolve around Donald Trump, and not every political party and political process and political leader revolves around everything that Donald Trump says. This form of take back Canada has it only deals with in a political and economic sense. In other words. What Aaron O'Toole is proposing, like all the conservative leadership candidates are proposing federally, is that they want to bring an end to what they see as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's progressive political vision, and they want to bring it back or take back Canada to the time when there could be, or the rebuilding of, a conservative Canada, a la Stephen Harper, my old friend and boss. That's really what it is. So basically, you're taking a vision that you think has failed, and replacing it with a political or economic vision that you think could be successful in the future. It has absolutely nothing to do with Trump. It has nothing to do with U.S. politics. And sometimes when you're looking for conspiracies or you're looking for to make a mountain out of a molehill, it, it just doesn't work sometimes. Sometimes the, the examination or the strategy or the slogan or whatever is as simple as you think it is. And in this case, it's a very simple, straightforward, and I believe it will be an effective message, too. So simple that it's complicated? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's a positioning statement. I mean, all companies' products do this. It, it, it captures the essence of, of, of your message. But if the slogan is raising questions, is it a strong one? I mean, if people are having, it reminds me of the 20 seconds of silence with the prime minister. We were all left trying to figure out what the heck it all meant. Mm -hmm. So the slogan should state exactly what you're, what you're for. Uh, if it creates more questions or, or creates more uh, conversation or distraction, is it a good slogan? The problem is right now we're living in a society, Scott, where people are triggered over everything. Absolutely everything. We see it on the streets, we see it during the protests, we see it in discussions, we see it between reasonable individuals or people who are irrational, whatever the case may be. We're just seeing it on a regular basis. You know, statues coming down, petitions to change names, a variety of things. Again, not related necessarily to what Aaron O'Toole on his leadership campaign staff or team has actually assembled as a slogan, but unfortunately... It's never going to please everyone. And I mean, I mean, I think that's just part of life, too. You can't please everyone. I think, though, that, again, if you continue to emphasize take back Canada, but you talk about it sort of along the lines that I suggested that, that it's a political or economic messaging statement to bring us back to a time when Canada had a conservative mindset when it came to politics, economics, foreign policy, you know, looking backwards at, at people who have been successful, who have been conservative prime ministers, Stephen Harper, Brian Mulroney, and others. If you do it that way, I think most of the confusion will disappear. Now, if they just keep talking about Take Back Canada and they don't really explain what I believe they're, they're trying to say, 
yes, I think that could create more confusion. But my guess is that having now sort of experienced a little bit of blowback the last couple of days, I think they'll probably switch gears, emphasize certain things a little bit more, and get the message back on track. Because overall, it's a very simple message. It's not Trumpian. It's, it's just basic politics and economics, or just very basic political sense that any conservative should use, because we want to take back the nation, so to speak, to a time that we think was better. And when he, if you're just looking at Stephen Harper's The Model, it was just a few years ago. So I think it actually can work to their benefit. Uh, you know, I see your point entirely uh, on this, Michael, but my point is if you have to explain it, then, then it misses the mark. Um, we have talked before many times about how pol- uh, politics ha- has become very polarized, how it's very divisive, one side or the other, extreme in some cases. We also talked about uh, the, the the win in the next election will come in the center. Right. Is this too far right? Is this center enough for a, a win for this party? I'm going to be honest with you, Scott. I don't find this to be right or left. I just find it to be a, re- a reasonable and rational slogan. The fact that it's creating some confusion, you're right. But you know what? I think that all the leadership candidates could produce slogans that would create some confusion. Even in times when there's more of a sense of normalcy that we've seen, and that is for most of us been, generally speaking, most of our lives, there have been lots of slogans that have come up that should have been, should appear to have been very straightforward, confused some people, took a little bit of explanation, rerouted it a bit, and it worked out perfectly fine. I mean, sometimes, obviously, you know, campaign slogans, political slogans catch on right away. But again, it depends how interesting they are how sort of uh, do they have a bit of a populist twang does it appeal to a certain demographic it all depends this one i think it's really much to do about nothing i think it's a very simple and straightforward message and if it needs a little tiny bit of explanation i don't think it's that big a deal but again this has only been introduced in the last couple of days, and I think it'll be discussed for quite a lot more. We've uh, talked, and here's my last point on this. We've talked sure. uh, at length, uh, you know, about, and, and this is my opinion, that it's your granddad's conservative party. They haven't modernized, and that doesn't mean moving away necessarily from conservatism, but just certainly being more aware of where society is at in 2020. Mm-hmm. Does Take Back Canada allude to another time, taking back, going backwards because again to me i would like to see them take a more forward-looking approach as opposed to back and again that's just in the messaging yeah but i look i again i i think this is uh, go ahead call me wishy-washy michael no, you can no, say that no, wishy-washy. i just think this is a lot for three words and i i, I you know as, as someone who is a wordsmith and deals with words even i think this is a bit much not from you but just in general, that we're having this. Look, if they had made a very folksy slogan like, um, you know, we want a better Canada, I, I think people could align with it, but what does that mean? What is a better Canada? What about, uh, about United? Was it better before? Let me ask you this. What about something that, maybe not this, but incorporates this? Unite Canada. But Unite Canada under what? Mm. See, that's the problem, too. That's also open-ended. What are you uniting it as? Are you, we uniting it as a progressive vision, a conservative vision? Are we uniting under a foreign policy model? Are we uniting under tax policy? Again, it's simple. It's two words, and it's actually very easy, but it can be interpreted in a whole multitude of ways. 
much like O'Toole slogan can, and much like anything that Peter McKay, Leslin Lewis, and Derek Sloan propose over the next couple of months can also be interpreted in different ways. So I think you can sit down and break apart any slogan quite easily, and it can go on for a long period of time. But sometimes the slogan itself is very easy, straightforward to understand, and I think just unfortunately in these days, we're looking for a lot of different hidden meanings that really don't exist. You know, it just reminds me of the, you know, the, the hidden myths that ran through the 2004 and 2006 federal election, which worked well against Stephen Harper one time via Paul Martin, who was then prime minister, and failed miserably the second time where Harper became prime minister and Martin was turfed out of office. So, Do we know what Peter McKay's uh, slogan is yet? Not yet. No, I mean, well, look, O'Toole is the only one to have released his policy platform, so we'll see what McKay does. Um, but I would think that McKay will have a political slogan of some sort. It would be highly unusual and I would almost say irregular for a political leadership not or a candidate not to have one. Um, but when it comes out, we'll see what it is. If it's wishy-washy or something to that extent, maybe it won't go through a lot of parsing of lips, so to speak. Or if it's complex or if it's simple but people can interpret it in a million different ways, we could be discussing the same thing in a few weeks' time. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Have a great weekend. Be well. You too. Stay safe. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. We have uh, talked a lot about the fallout of uh, COVID-19, where life is going uh, and, and how it will not be the same as we move forward and how this changes our priorities. We've talked uh, to many real estate uh, professionals over the course of this 13 weeks, and uh, they are hearing more tre- uh, trending towards space, a backyard, uh, extra room for an office, uh, from working from home, this sort of thing. Uh, quite the opposite of what we've been hearing uh, prior to COVID-19 for the last uh, 20 or so years, and that's we need higher density housing, we need a smaller footprint, and, and, and well, more density. Uh, that being said, though, at a time when uh, a lot of us, or we were all pretty much restricted to our homes, obviously it's a different scenario depending upon uh, where you live. How can cities enhance their green space and their boundaries uh, in a post-COVID-19 world. Let's bring in uh, uh, co-authors of a piece in the conversation uh, that was uh, published. Ryan Plummer is with us, professor and director of the Environmental Sustainable Research Center at Brock, and Mr. Darby, De- or, sorry, Dr. Darby DeGrath, research scientist and leader of the Greening the Landscape Program at the Vineland Research and Innovation Center. Uh, thank you to both of you for uh, attending today and taking part, uh, and we hope you're both doing well. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Scott. Appreciate being here. All right. um, uh, Let's let's start on with my first point. Uh, Talking to real estate agents, they're seeing a trend in what people are looking for. Your thoughts on that? And whoever wants to answer, go ahead. Sure. Um, I can jump in first here. Um, Yeah, I think what this has really highlighted for a lot of folks is that, um, you know, when we we end up in situations where we can be out exploring uh, nature a little bit more, um, with the free time or at least the restrictions that we've all been experiencing that certainly people are, are, are trying to do that. And they're looking for those spaces, um, in and around their homes. And in a lot of cases, you know, we're, we're falling a little bit short of that. And that's sort of been highlighted by this experience, I think. 
So, uh, again, uh, even in Canada, which has, uh, you know, a a roughly low population compared to something like the United States, we're 10 times smaller than them in population, yet landmass as big or bigger. Um, And for years, it's, you know, we have to put a stop to urban sprawl. We have to control this. We have to, you know, stack people up like cordwood for lack of a better term. How do we balance these two where, you know, we're not being wasteful and and, and sprawling all over the place. Yet, on the other hand, we spread out a bit and, and perhaps now with technology, build smarter cities. I think I think your initial comments, Scott, were were spot on and got uh, I think all your listeners really thinking. I mean, this idea that folks have cabin fever or have had cabin fever from COVID and uh, all of a sudden want to get out and, and find nature is uh, is spot on. And so, to your point about you know how do we do things uh, in in a dense way that you know isn't wasteful of the space that we have, um, I think that was the the real point of of the piece we have in the conversation. Uh, you know, number one, we got to do things differently, and and that means incorporating green space wherever we can, uh, and and kind of making incremental changes. And then, second of all, we really have to rethink uh, our past approaches, and and we can do that. There's some great examples where we have done that, and there's some some leaders internationally and and some great potential curators here in Canada to do so. Um, and if we, we start changing the way we do things, you know, we can uh, really take advantage of having dense cities, but also green cities that are, are livable for both ourselves and, and ecosystems. So let's take a city like Toronto, because it's the biggest in Canada in this respect. And, and anybody who's been on the planet for a few years has watched it grow. And Hamilton learning an awful lot from this and, and the rest of the Golden Horseshoe as it's expanding. So when you have a city that's already formed in its borders and it's there and there's very little room for expansion other than up, how do you take an old city and add green space to it? And how do you again, balance that with you going up, with everybody building up. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And that was one of the things that we were really, you know, grappling with in, in the piece that we wrote, because there is a lot of entrenched gray infrastructure that, you know, our cities rely upon right now. And what the article, uh, I think, tries to do, and hopefully it does for some folks, is, is to get people thinking about some of those incremental things that we can do right now. So where where we can add green space into this sort of existing entrenched design. The City of Toronto is a good example of, of a city trying to do that right now with things like green roof bylaws and trying to increase their street tree population wherever they can. They're certainly reaching out to uh, private landowners to try to get them planting trees and increasing um, you know, the overall canopy cover of the city. But I think what um, the more maybe challenging perspective for people to take will be rethinking uh, planning itself. So starting to think about green spaces first when we have the opportunity to develop or to redesign a particular landscape. And this hasn't you know, typically been the approach. But, in but let me ask you, Darby, and sorry to interrupt, but when that yeah. happens, are you not, you know, uh, in order to create more green space, are you not sacrificing that density? Um, in places where they're doing it well, so the example we gave of Utrecht in the Netherlands, they haven't been finding that. It's just much more strategic. So, you know, rather than taking a piecemeal approach to landscape planning or, or community planning, it really does take an overall sort of community or even municipal city type design to think about that. And we give those examples of thinking 
in terms of spatial connectivity and looking at patches and matrices and, and corridors the same way that we do in ecosystems, but just applying those principles to cities as well. So what does that mean to the average city? And, and you know, what's the average city? But, uh, but, but again, what sort of, uh, say, for example, there's a lot that becomes available. Should that be uh, designated a park or it looked in towards enhancing a green space as opposed to building something? Yeah, I think that's a, a fantastic example and question of, of how thinking differently uh, puts a new perspective on what to do if a lot does become available. So to stick with your, your earlier question of Toronto, um, you know, there's some, some really fascinating data out and, and our colleague and co-author Janeni, um, really her specialty, um, looking at how do we connect the dots of tree canopy covers. So in the example of Toronto, we can look at, you know, on average, it's kind of middle of the pack in terms of large, uh, metropolis centers in terms of average amount of green space but then you actually start mapping out tree canopy cover and connecting those different dots you know we see that it's located as darby was saying close to ravines close to existing park areas and so where we have new development we actually have much less space and so bring in covid and you can't use public transportation in some instances you can't get to green space so then acquiring a lot encouraging uh, you know, individual citizens, stewardship groups to start thinking about, you know, greening and doing things differently uh, provides an opportunity because otherwise, again, using Toronto as an example, you know, your, your essentially your hard boundaries, so the amount of uh, permeable space that you actually have is really tough to overcome. So you need to think of different different ways to do things you always have done to make it more green, but then also doing new things. And, you know, changing lots might be a good example of that so hamilton uh very much i'm guessing in this discussion at a crossroads here we have another major old city now very much going through a renaissance again although you know how many times have i used used that term uh and is on a growth spurt is really you know i mean it's 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 got it's a city with a bright future let's be honest here Mm -hmm. and things are expanding things are are growing how important is it for a city of hamilton to have this discussion as we expand yeah, that's, that's this is exactly the kind of situation where we hope uh, city officials are having that type of discussion because, you know, prospective strategic planning now can really, really improve the quality of life for people and for our cities themselves um, down the road. So this is exactly the kind of scenario where, you know, it's, it's going to be important to develop alternative future scenarios. You know, so what would it look like if you did this? You know, if you really prioritize green space and you, you know, you mapped all those things out versus, you know, maybe doing it the way that we typically have done it before. And and those are the cases where, you know, if you're at the precipice of change, it's the time to it's the time to make change. I think. So in in a, uh, a world of up and, you know, you're building up and in condos, how do they fit into this? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, yeah. and I think there's uh, there's a lot of examples globally right now of uh, people tackling design differently. So, you know, there's buildings around the world Intercom. where they're incorpor- incorporating more and in different kinds of uh, green infrastructure into the buildings themselves. And I think um, you know 
not only are designers starting to think this way, I think there's more public demand for it. And certainly there's going to be policy and governance changes that, that encourage that as well. So as people go up, I think you'll see more sort of aerial parks in buildings, uh, trees on buildings, green roofs, intensive, extensive, all different kinds of green infrastructure um, are going to be not only sort of encouraged, but probably started starting to be enforced in certain situations because they do different things. They, you know, they manage uh, stormwater runoff, which is one of the reasons why it's a priority in the city of Toronto. But certainly all of a sudden you can have a park within a condo building if, if that's the kind of design that you, that you think about. Think about that. Just even rooftop gardens, rooftop terraces, that sort of thing. If every building was to have one of those, my goodness, how life would be different. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Darby McGrath has been with us, research scientist and leader of the Greening the Landscape Program at Vineland Research and Innovation Centre. Also, Ryan Plummer, professor and director of the Environmental Sustainable uh, Sustainability Research Centre at Brock University. And they are both co-authors of a piece you can now find in the conversation on how we live in urban settings post COVID-19. Thank you so much. Much appreciated for, uh, uh, much appreciated both of you for uh, participating and be well this weekend. Take care. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. All right. Uh, you know, we've certainly talked about the mental uh, in, uh, mental health uh, aspect of COVID-19 since this uh, pandemic started 13 weeks ago. Uh, and lots of people not only feeling down and, 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 and anxious about all of this, and, and which, by the way, is all completely normal. Some have even uh, picked up symptoms of, of other things or, you know, whether it's a change in, in a menstrual cycle, whether it's a, it's a face breaking out, whether it's a rash. It, it just it, it affects people in different ways over and above anything we've probably ever experienced. So to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Kate Harkness, Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry, Director of the Mood Research Laboratory at Queen's University, and she is with us now. Kate, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hi. You know, um, now that we are at week 13, what is different from what we are feeling now as opposed to the, say, front side of this curve? Yeah, so, I mean, all of these symptoms that you talked about, these physical symptoms and even the emotional uh, and psychological symptoms are all, as you said, very normal, and they're a reflection of the body doing what it was designed to do in the face of stress. Um, but what has changed is that the stress of COVID has gone from being an acute stress way at the beginning when we thought, well, maybe this will last a few days, maybe this will last, you know, March break, and then the kids will be able to go back to school. And now, as you said, 13 weeks later. Um, and people have felt that stress kind of on a day-to-day basis with not just the threat of COVID itself, but also the social isolation measures, um, changes with work, maybe not working. And so that just puts continuous stress on the body and the brain. And as you said, can result in some kind of sometimes odd and, and confusing symptoms. You know, it was interesting. I was I was listening to my kids talk earlier about, you know, 2020, a terrible year, a terrible year. And, you know, I said, you know, terrible things happen every year. It's just you're thinking this because it's enhanced so much by COVID-19. But when you think back to when this started 13 weeks ago and some of the other things that have happened in the country, whether uh, it's the downing of the snowbird, whether the military accident that happened, uh, the shooting in New Brunswick, now the social unrest that's going on, some may feel that society is becoming unwound. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, I, that's very insightful of, of your kids and, and of you too, really, that these bad things happen every year. And probably if we were going to go, to go back to 2019, 2018, we would see that there were these acute, really bad events that happen. I think what's different this year is that it, they're all happening with this context of chronic stress of COVID. And that just kind of heightens our reaction to those things and also makes it a little bit more difficult for us to kind of handle those acute stressors when they occur because we're already at this elevated level of stress all the time. Um, If you have counseling, it's easy sometimes to identify this. If you haven't, how how do you realize this? How do you accept this and move forward? It's normal, as you say. Yeah, so I want to I want to be really clear that I you know we want to make a distinction between people whose level of stress and worry and anxiety and, and potentially even depression are overwhelming to the point where they're finding it hard to maybe take care of their kids or take care of themselves, or um, you know they're having really hard time sleeping and, and other sorts of issues like that. That is certainly a time where people should be contacting their family doctor, um, contacting their mental health professional if they have one. There are many resources that have been opened up in the face of COVID to provide psychological and counseling services remotely, and um, so people should definitely be accessing those. Um, and then there's just you know, er, you know, everybody uh, experiencing symptoms of stress that they might not be used to and they might not think about. And they might not even think that they are symptoms of stress. So you mentioned things like breaking out. Um, uh, I've, I, you know, I've heard people talk about, I'm so itchy all the time. Um, hmm. You know, I haven't had a period in three months, you know, those sorts of things. People might not realize that those, are, those two are actually symptoms of stress. They're, they're the body kind of in the background trying to deal with this excess load of stress. And so just first of all, kind of being aware that that might be part of what's going on and also being forgiving of oneself that these are totally normal uh, feelings that one would be having at this time. And again, it's the body doing things that it was designed to do. It just really wasn't designed to do them for for this long. And so I think part of the issue is if people kind of realize that this is normal, that this is okay, it's not, it doesn't mean that something horrible is happening with one's body at, these, at this kind of more normal level. And then there are lots of things people can do to kind of calm the body down, even in the context of this stress um, that, that we're going through. Um, things like exercise, for example. That's hard to do when you're inside, um, but even 20 minutes of moderate exercise can actually really do a lot to calm those stress hormones down. Um, that could be doing an exercise video inside or jogging around the house and certainly getting outside if you can. There's really amazing research showing that nature and sunlight can actually release positive chemicals that counteract those stress processes in the body. Only got about a minute left. What about kids? How do you deal with kids in this? Oh, and only a minute? Yeah. <laughs> That's been a real challenge. And kids have, have uh, gone through their own mental health challenges and their own challenges with stress during this time. I think, again, being there to listen to your kids when they talk about feeling stressed out and encouraging them to see that that is normal and that it's actually really good to talk about it and encouraging them to get outside, exercise, and not isolate themselves. So we're distanced, but we should still be getting in touch with our friends, um, even if it's at a, at a distance. How much, how important is it for you to try to teach them that, to recognize this? And, and when you're feeling this, it's normal, it's because of this. 
yeah, I think that that's really important. It normalizes it, and it'll help them go forward to be able to recognize it when you aren't there, that this is their body doing what it's normally supposed to do. This is an emotional reaction that everybody has under stress. It's okay, and here are some things I can do to deal with it. All right, Kate Harkness has been with us, Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry and Director of the Mood Research Laboratory at Queen's University. Kate, thanks so much for the advice. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Reverend Jim Carrier is with us now. Jim, thanks for taking the time. Hope you're well. Nice to be here, Scott. I am well. Will you be part of my bubble? Can we get together uh, next week and give, give one another a big hug? I bet you your bubble's massive, pal, uh, especially, uh, you know, with the congregation and such. So uh, here we are, the end of week number 13, although wow. we are getting some positive news. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about how uh, tough it is with not only going through COVID-19, but everything else that seems to be uh, uh, on our plate, whether it's, uh, well, and let's be obvious, the, the tragic death of, of George Floyd. We, we've talked uh-huh. many times about being divisive. Do you feel this bringing us together, Jim? Do you feel something changing here? Well, I feel something's changing, but, you know, clearly it's not bringing um, all of us together. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's some conflict, uh, you know, especially to our neighbors to the south, but it's putting our eyes, uh, here in Canada as well as to some, uh, racial, uh, systemic problems that, that, that we may have. Um, the COVID virus is, is, is unrelated to that, um, but, but it's still, uh, another layer on this, on this onion that, that needs to be, uh, peeled back for sure. Um, I think that, uh, that progress is made, can be made. I think your, uh, your previous guest was talking about dialogue and having open dialogue. And, and I think that, that that's still possible, despite the fact that we may feel it's not, uh, but that we really need to start, uh, to start to grow up a bit and, and be a little bit mature about approaching one another, uh, with, with the open eyes and knowing that, 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 that we're all, we're all created by God. We're all, uh, we're all in this together. Uh, regardless of skin color, regardless of race, regardless of where you're from, regardless of your 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 status, you know, your social status, that we're kind of all in this together. And if we peel back those layers that we put on people, those labels that we put on people, and just address one another one on one as you know what I'm human, you're human, let's talk about this. Then then I think the change is is possible. And I think I think that that certainly we're we're on the road in, in on that in, in a political sense. I think that that these are the beginnings of hopefully the beginnings of of good of good uh, active dialogue toward change and toward understanding one another. So I think that that's important. Uh, if we're if something makes us feel uncomfortable, should we not question that? And you know, I'm referring to what we're hearing a lot lately is: Do we have se- a systemic racism? If we have to keep asking ourselves if we have systemic racism, don't we have systemic racism? And if that well, makes you feel uncomfortable, then does that mean there's some inward thinking there? You've got some work to do. Well, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think you know, feeling uncomfortable is 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 a little bit is a little bit subjective. But if you want to know if there's systemic racism, I mean, it's it's not as though there's there's something invisible out there and that we have this feeling. I mean, these feelings are based on our experience, whether it's reading news stories or or the black community's experience with 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 the police. I mean, there are some realities, some truths out there that, and some facts that, and data even that, 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 that's out there that we need to take a look at. And, uh, and this, this sense of doing something, um, based on, based on your feelings. I mean, I mean, sure, we're, we're driven, 
a lot by our feelings, but but there's something there's something behind them, and that is you know the circumstances, the facts. You know, is there systemic racism in Canada? Let's step back. Let's take a look at our laws. Let's take a look at how police manage different uh, different people in different areas, in different neighborhoods, in different cities. Let's take a look at these things, and and that's where we'll find our answer. That's where we'll find our answers. Uh, any message as we head into weekend number 13? Uh, we've now opened the social circle, so now we can meet with members of our family within those guidelines and our social circles. Got about a minute left. Uh, well, I think that's great. I think uh, pick your social circles well. This may be uh, difficult for some families who are better, that are fairly large. Uh, but but pick your social circle circles well, and I think the uh, government was intentional on on saying meet with family because I don't think anybody wants to meet with enemies right now. We're pretty frustrated with things that are going on. So uh, just uh, just yeah, just plan your circles well and enjoy your time together. Just just you just feed off that. Remember that's going to bring back memories, but it's also going to bring back hopes. And that this summer is actually not as not going to be as bad as we thought it would be. It's not going to be perfect. But this summer is not going to be as bad as it, as we thought it would be. So this is great. This is great. Reverend Jim Carrier has been with us from Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines. Make sure you check out his Facebook page and uh, see Jimmy in action. Uh, Jim, as always, thanks so much. Very much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Be well. Hope the family's doing well, too. You too, Scott. God bless. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.